Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. <laughs> it must be silly when our conversations start with me laughing because of something that just got said or because of the disembodied voice in the ether that always welcomes us to this Zoom session. But it either welcomes us or warns us. That's right. That we're about to be recorded. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we have had, and I just want to acknowledge this publicly, a lot of positive feedback about our co-teaching Sunday. And I want to just say publicly how much fun that was for me to be with you like that. And I thought it was great. Yeah, me too. I think we, um, yeah, we're all right together, friend. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, I had mentioned to you that I I thought it would be cool since we have a commitment to co-teach at least the first Sunday of every month together to kind of find a a path a format that fits and and um, you have been uh, nagging me <laughs> said the man to the woman. <laughs> Do guy, I, I nag, I nag sometimes. I do. <laughs> you have been gently reminding me for a while now about picking up and reading uh, um, Edward Edinger's book, um, The Union. What's it called? <laughs> I can tell what's you. It called? <laughs> I didn't bring it. I didn't bring it, but I read three chapters in it this morning. It's called The Christian Archetype. Colon. I love it. I love oh, it. Oh, yay. A Jungian commentary on the life of Christ. It's so, I, this is, this is, yeah. you know, this is kind of what I, I was thinking. And uh, this is taking people behind the behind the curtain to see kind of how the sausage is made. But I, I was thinking, um, would there be some way to do a blending? of the outline that Edinger has in this book, which is really good. Thank you for staying on, <laughs> nagging me, encouraging me, reminding me, whatever you want to say, subliminally, suggesting to me. Anyway, uh, would there be a way that we could put that and uh, some of... Um, John Sanford's writings about the kingdom within together and kind of plot forward. You know, I, I was thinking of a line that, that Marcus Borg has in one of his books about Jesus. He quotes a Southern writer whose name I'm going to block on right now as saying we live in a Christ-obsessed culture. Mm. And um, this is either in the last book that Borg wrote about Jesus, in which he says at the beginning, this is the last book about Jesus I'm ever going to write. 
He also wrote a book at sort of the beginning of his publishing career called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. The Did first you read book that book? I read by him. I, I, I got introduced to it actually before I really knew you when I was a senior in college. So in some ways, this I think I've told you about this. I took this class, my very last class I took in college. The guy who was the professor was known to be incredibly hard. So I had kind of like avoided his classes. <laughs> and, and I took his class um, last class, senior year, and wished I had taken more. He was a historical Jesus guy. And he introduced me to Marcus Borg. And John Donald Crossan, I cannot who, remember his name, but oh, I wonder we, if you would know him. Yeah. I would love to know. Yeah. Can you resurrect that sometime? I, I can. I can look, just look through the bowels of the Colorado College um, history. And, it, you know, um, for me, it was um, mind blowing in the best possible way um, and kind of like a really heavy sigh of relief, like think. God, there's another way to relate to this. So I'm wondering, and you're you give me your your honest response to this. I, I this is fascinating to me. I've, I've I've found reading Edgar's book on the um, ego and archetype, which I I think Holly, I first read that in 1966. I think. No, no, it wasn't 66. I first read that book in 1996. Okay, okay. That's when I first read that book. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was published in 66. That's a, I made that up. So um, 66 I've got in my mind for a class I'm teaching in two weeks in Ordinary ah. Life about the death of God. Okay. Ooh. Anyway, I reread the Edgar book, and that led me to a deeper realization that all of this stuff that we say is mythological. Mm -hmm. It's all myth. Mm -hmm. And so to see the Jesus story as a myth is, I think, liberating and fascinating and interesting. And, of course, here you've got Marcus Borg talking about the Jesus of history and not writing anything at all that I remember about mythological interpretations mm -hmm. of Jesus. I don't think either Borg or Crossan. Crossan does some of that, but most of the mostly these guys have been interested in the Jesus of history. Jesus was a historical figure who lived and did and said these things. Been a lot of energy spent about that. Mm-hmm. Do you think Jesus can be both a historical figure and a myth? Oh, absolutely. I think mm -hmm. he's a historical figure about whom myths were constructed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, this is the part of, that I'm, I'm curious about. You know, Edgar says that if you kind of parallel the church's life with uh, the drama of the Jesus story, Jesus comes along and Jesus lives. Jesus has his ministry, and then he gets crucified. He mm -hmm. dies. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's what we're seeing going on in the church. Today, the church is dying. Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. I was just with a group this morning. Uh, it's kind of a garden group uh, through this community church plant that a friend of mine is doing, and I'm helping with the garden design. And... Um, 
each of the people in there in that meeting had very fraught relationships with church and they were kind of like and it's they were a little bit like do I belong here because I'm not so churchy and it's almost like okay you remember that time we talked about the pyramid the social pyramid during which Jesus lived where there were just so very few people at the tippy top of the pyramid but Jesus really lived and breathed and moved along the bottom and his idea of the pyramid was basically to like open it wide open and flatten it. <laughs> uh-huh. And, and I, and that's the direction that I think the church needs to go. Like the church needs to be relevant to the world and it needs to be responsive to the problems of the world. Um, I, my interpretation of why spiritual teachings is that actually transformation looks like being in the world. Mm-hmm. loving the world, falling in love with the world. Because that's where our, that's where our work is. This is where our work is. And um, when we have fallen in the world, then we fall in love with the world. We've also transcended the world in that paradoxical mm-hmm. sense. And I, I don't think the church has done that. The church itself as a thing to me is like a giant ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm wondering also if, say, the people that you were with this morning, uh, if they still are interested in, fascinated by, have a desire even to translate the mm-hmm. Jesus of history into contemporary understandings for their lives. Mm-hmm. If that's a relevant mm-hmm. thing to them. I mean, you, you, I did certainly, and you did to some degree, grew up uh, being exposed to all these Jesus stories. And I think that we are increasingly having people come to class who have not had that background. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. It's interesting because it's easy to take for granted that nearly everyone has been exposed to the Jesus story because of the prevalence of Christianity in America. And, and specifically in the South. Well, I think everybody has been exposed to the Jesus story, mostly inaccurately if you take it from our culture. <laughs> That's but right. You've got a lot of people who grew up in the church, but no, there's no one in American culture who escapes knowing something about Jesus just because mm-hmm. of Christmas and Easter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the, the wisest, um, and just I return to this again and again, so specifically today, when that came up, I, I took it to the topic of love. Like to me, any of these stories is about how do we show up in the world and how do we just do more love in the world, whether you are Hindu, whether you're Christian, whether you're atheist, whether, you know, but, but it's how do we show up and be our best selves? And um, you gave this analogy once. I, I I can't remember the name of the talk. If I was that good, I would remember, but I'm not. Um, of you can't dig ten wells five feet deep. You dig one well, really, mm-hmm. really, really deep, and that's where all the waters run together. Right. And the deeper and deeper and deeper I get into the myth of Christianity, if you will, the more and more and more I realize that it's all myth. Mm-hmm that it's all very similar, you know, that this fundamental commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. 
to do unto others as you would have someone do unto you. That's that's where the water ble bleeds together for me. Yes, and, and the, the relevance of this for me is that we're living in a world I'm thinking now about what we call the civilized countries or the mm. industrialized countries. We're living in a world, but certainly we're living in a country where the energy seems to be drifting toward um, such, such fear of neighbor rather than love of neighbor mm -hmm. that people are willing to trust a dictator rather than learn to love their neighbor. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and as you say that, um, yes, we are isolated into fear and mistrust and um, scarcity thinking, I think, kind of a zero-sum thinking is, is mm -hmm. what this author, Heather McGee, calls it. Like when we're in zero-sum thinking, we think, well, if I gain something, someone else has to lose. Or if they gain something, then I have to lose. And, you know, on the one hand, when we think of neighbor, we think of relationship. And I want to challenge us to move past the need to even like our neighbor in order to have the very basic sense of dignity, respect, and humanity towards them. You know, uh, it's it's kind of like we rely first on whether I like you or not. And then whether I like you or not depends on how well I'm going to treat you. Mm -hmm. Or we go so far afield and we've already decided that all immigrants are, uh, what did I hear Mr. Trump saying on uh, the news not too long ago that they were releasing all the people from their prisons to come here and attack you. So we go so far afield that we say all immigrants are criminals, which then makes us fear the one who's directly next to us. You know, so what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say two things at once. It can't be based on relationship. In other words, it can't be based on how I feel about you. It has to be deeper than that. It has to be based on do I actually honor your humanity? Mm -hmm. And if I honor your humanity, then I'm never going to talk about you as if you and everyone else like you is a criminal. You know, mm -hmm. if I honor your humanity, then I'm more interested in the relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in the story. I'm more interested in the points of connection. And it's, it's a really strange thing to me that we are the same, we are one species. Humans are a species. And there is more infighting and, and, and disconnection and violence within our species than, than any other species that I can immediately think of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're so divided. Yeah, and, it, and, and that points to I think what you were just saying, the inner world, which is also very divided. Right. Our inner world is so fragmented. Um, and so our outer world is too. You know, somebody asked me last week what, what my daily spiritual practice was. 
which is a fair question because I'm always nagging people about having a daily spiritual practice. And, and I, you know, I, I, I said something about it because we didn't have a lot of time. But I think about the fact that, you know, I'm at the age I am, have the lifestyle that I am. I don't have any children or grandchildren at home on top of me all the time. So I have an expanse of time every morning mm. to have this really fairly long, by which I mean at least an hour of spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And um, I try not to do anything before I do this, mm -hmm. um, so I don't clutter my mind. I don't read the paper. I don't turn on TV. I ne never do that. Anyway, hardly uh, don't turn on the radio. I just do my practice. And then, so I did that today. And then I went and checked my email. And I got uh, two news feeds. Summaries of news. I get actually three or four, but I get a couple every morning that I look at. So just summaries of what's going on in the world. And one of the news stories was about our governor, Greg Abbott, sending migrants to Washington to as a punishment to the Biden administration for not dealing with migrants who cross the borders. Hmm. And the problems that that was causing in Washington and other places, I don't think Texas, I think Arizona is also doing this, sending migrants to Washington. Mm. And I thought about all the characters who are involved in this. These, the people who perpetrate this, the migrants themselves, the people who have to deal with this. And I, I, you know, I wanted to send loving kindness and compassion to all of them, but man, that's mm -hmm. so hard to do. Mm -hmm. It's just such a, you know, I, because I step back and I look at it and I think, this is such a stupid, unnecessary thing. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's part of the reality we deal with. And, and I don't want to back away from acknowledging that reality uh, and our teaching just being something that's in some ivory tower somewhere. Right. You know what I'm talking uh, about? Yeah, I, I totally know what you're talking about. I think that's where, um, so two things. One is the liberation movement started in philosophy and theology and psychology and spirituality to remove these things from the ivory towers. This, it, 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 it put it among the people. It put all of these practices among the people so that philosophy becomes a practice, so that psychology becomes a practice, so that theology becomes a practice, not just something we think about and then do something different, um, but an embodied being, an embodied way of being. Um, and, you know, when I, and then I, when I hear you say, I really wanted to send loving, kind and loving kindness and compassion to everyone in this story, I would, I, my, my thought is yes. And loving kindness and compassion, love has boundaries and love can be fierce. And it's a kindness sometime to say what you're doing is not okay because it draws a clear boundary because it makes a clear statement about integrity and values. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think sometimes we think of love 
and kindness and compassion as such soft skills. Um, and and the, then the next jump is, well, the people who offer it and give it and do it for a living have are, are so selfless. But actually, I think the people who are doing it really well have a lot of fierceness. I, I think this is where Martin Luther King talked about a tough mind and a tender heart, right? Mm -hmm. We have to be tough-minded and tender-hearted. Uh, gosh, I'm not a scripture genius, but there's a verse in Matthew about um, uh, love being uh, like a serpent. And, and a dove. Yes. Yeah. 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 Smart yeah. as a serpent and gentle as a dove. Basically. Yeah. So it's holding that tension. Love at its best holds the tension between the serpent and the dove, between the tough-minded and the tender heart. You know, so uh, reminded me of something I sent to you this week by Jan Phillips. Mm, yeah, that was gorgeous. Can I read it? Yeah, you got my text that I realized. Yeah, that's oh, amazing. I've had this prayer book from her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, for those of you who don't know yet, Jan Phillips, who wrote a book called, um, um, Still, still on, on fire. Still on fire. That uh, Michael Moore would refer to me. Jan Phillips is coming to Houston on the weekend of January sixth and seventh of this coming year. And please get her book and read it. This is something that I found. Uh, I'm now on her email list, and uh, she sent this out this week. I found Jesus. He was behind the couch the whole time. <laughs> I love that. I know. <laughs> People call themselves seekers, always looking, always looking. It puzzles me. Whole lifetimes spent seeking and they never find it. If our home wasn't in flames, I could let it go. That myth about God with the whole world in his hands. Mm -hmm. Come on. Why are we reading sacred texts from centuries gone by while today's prophets go unheard? We were a simpler people then, needing parables to help us see the ways we lighten the dark, we lighten or darken the threshold. It is too late now not to speak of fire. Anything else is collusion, complicity. The prophets of today peer out from mirrors and townhomes and tenements. We do not speak of golden calves, swarms of locusts. We speak of rainforests, poison waters, polluted skies. Will you please give words to your wisdom or fear and tell your truth to someone? It's okay to blunder, to stammer. Okay that tears and snot stream down your face. The mess is worthy of our grief. A wise man once said, we're in the light of the world. Tell me what might be different if you shine for a day. I love that. Mm. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I was reading along with your text as you read read it. And I am, it's funny what stops you, right? You can, do, can kind of do like a quick Lectio Divina, what stands out as you read that. And to me, um, partly because I was just writing through this, but the mess is worthy of our grief. And this idea of grieving all that has been lost I don't think we grieve well. 
And I don't think it's linear and I don't think there's a five-step process to grief. I think there are phases and stages, but they're also not linear. <laughs> and, you know, but I think this, this idea of grief as a country, we do not sit with discomfort and pain very well. No. And, and, and grief is actually what opens us to the tenderness of kindness and compassion. Grief is what opens us to the real self, to what, what opens us to creativity, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that's really missing and, and, and wise practices is this tendency or this tending to grief. So to go back to where we started today mm. about the Christian myth and my question about its relevancy for a lot of people, um, I think that whether people know the Jesus myth or any of the myths about rebirth, life, death, and rebirth, that they're universal and mm-hmm. that um, not only are they universal, they're not linear, they're circular. They're like, uh, what's the word for the snake swallowing its tail? Ouroboros. Ouroboros. That's one mm-hmm. of your favorite notions. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, but it is, it is like a spiral staircase that we go either down or up. And we go around the same points over and over and over again until we give up the body. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I am excited about the prospect of maybe um, when we think we're finally done with John. Uh, <laughs> or when John's done with us. <laughs> John is done with us. Uh, and uh, maybe we just need to realize that if we can spend years. Yeah. You can spend years of John and go ahead. And, and develop this theme or get into the theme of the, the Christian archetype mm-hmm. and supplement it with uh, the kingdom within material. That's yeah. so exciting to me it's, to think about doing. It's so rich. Um, so I was, gosh, I'm, I, I don't mean to like always refer back to, I was just writing about, but um I'm so grateful that you've given us the image and the language of the spiral. And when we start to deepen that awareness of the spiral, um, I see that it's everywhere, right? It's it's the shape of our cosmos, right? That the spiral Milky mm-hmm. Way. It's the shape of the perfect ratio, right? It's the shape of our DNA and it's the shape of our journey. And I've been thinking about, you know, someone said to me, really my, my, my work around my dissertation is culminating around like, how do we do love in the world? And I was thinking, well, what's the shape of love? And, uh, you know, circles and spirals were what I was offering. And I, I really think that what you just said is, is it spot on, um, the, this idea of the cosmic Ouroboros, do you, do you know about that? It's just, again, a symbol that we've overlaid onto the shape mm-hmm. of the cosmos, that everything begins and ends and begins again. <laughs> and this is just what's going to happen for the rest of time. Mm-hmm. Um, we may or may not be a part of it, but we will have been a part of it because, mm-hmm. you know, and 
yeah, that the shape of, I don't want to reduce love to some sappy, nostalgic, poetic idea only. I, I want love to be seen as the underlying power of the universe. And that love is birth, death, rebirth, birth, death, rebirth. Mm-hmm. And all of the things that come with that. Mm-hmm. So, um, if I've not mentioned to you and to those who are listening the David Attenborough thing, yeah. have you seen it? I haven't yet. You keep telling me about it, and I have not done my homework. <laughs> I I will really want to encourage everybody. I think it's on Netflix. It may be on yeah. Amazon, but I think it's on Netflix. It's David Attenborough's la- la- the latest thing he's done, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's sobering. Mm. It's sobering. Mm-hmm. Um, again, in the news feed that I got this morning, there was something about the extreme anticipated drought and water problems on the West Coast in the Western mm-hmm. states. This is just a sign of things to come. Yeah. Because, because of the way that we have treated the planet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, my friend Jaime, who was once upon a time at Ordinary Life, sent sent us a text the other day that the heat index by 2028 may be up to 125 degrees in this area. Now say that again. The heat index by 2028 may be upwards of 125 degrees in this area, in this region. Wow. Want to move to Canada? That's in five years, six years. Mm-hmm. No, I want to move to Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, no. better check the heat index. It's no, just nuts. It is nuts. Mm-hmm. So it's happening a lot faster than people originally anticipated. Yeah. And, you know, we, the, uh, the lawmakers just put into effect um, one of the largest and most sweeping um, environmental bills of all time in the U.S. history. I mean, honestly, there really just hasn't been one. Um, I don't know what what it all contains, but we're we're in the house is burning down mode, as as Jan Phillips' poem says, right? We're we're in the house is burning down mode, and I don't want to be, you know, Debbie Downer. <laughs> doom and gloom but it's the reality um the house is burning down mm-hmm. and in a sense it always has been it's just that it's in it's on serious fire right now well if you if you look at what david Edinburgh says in this documentary uh he's been at this for a long time yeah. and and he gives statistics as he goes along about uh, several things um, by decade, what the global population is, the amount of rainforests that are left, mm-hmm. and the uh, rising temperature of the earth. I think those are the three things that he reports on having since record ta- since record keeping of these things has begun over every 10 years. He, he reports about the increase in population, the decrease in rainforests, which mm-hmm. are the Earth's lungs. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and he does end with about 10 minutes of 
these are things that we could do and there are things that we could do if we could muster the collective will to do them yeah yeah it's really gotta be at the highest level of government too you know if rules and regulations exist for the purpose of uh, a general population being able to thrive um then the lawmakers need to put in place rules and regulations that will, will that will help us thrive and there's not the will there and i don't want to place the the power all in the hands of lawmakers but they do wield quite a bit of economic and at least legal power in our country right and if we don't change the laws if we literally don't say by 20 30, we want everyone to be driving electric cars and we're going to have electric stations to recharge at every, you know, town. We we need infrastructural change and, and that you and I can't go single-handedly replace gas pumps with electric charging stations. You know, that has to be done at the level of infrastructure. And I think that this is where we find ourselves at this crossroads of like the project is so big. It's a really big project. And it's so hard for the truth about this to be heard today. Yeah, yeah, because we don't have the sense yet that our livelihoods are at stake. Um, mm. who, who was it that, uh, was it George Bush who said, um, our way of life is not up for grabs, is not up for negotiation um, during the sort of first um, Paris Accord type um international it's our way of life is not up for grabs but <laughs> mm-hmm. it, what we have to be you know okay so let's talk about the jesus story and sacrifice sacrifice is part of transformation and 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 the jesus story is literally about the bodily sacrifice of jesus so that transformation can occur but somehow we've got it in our minds that we shouldn't have to sacrifice anything in order to transform. But mm. there is sacrifice involved. Mm. So we're going far afield here. Yes. But I would I would I would like your response to this. So um, as you've heard me say a dozen times or, or more, when 9-11 hit, I decided to do this, take this turn in my teaching about the historical Jesus and the dangers of fundamentalism and all that. And uh, it really irritated some people because they didn't want to hear this about things that they had felt and thought to be true for a long time. Okay. Mm-hmm. It seems to me there's something analogous to that going on in the secular world right now. And that is that we are in a period of time. And I heard John Meacham say yesterday. Mm. And I love John Meacham's stuff, Mm -hmm. primarily because he's from Vanderbilt and Tennessee. (laughs) I love John Meacham's stuff. He's so smart. He's such a good presenter. John Meacham said, we're closer than since the Civil War Mm -hmm. to losing our democracy. Mm -hmm. Okay? The rule of law the public has, many, many people in the public have taken such exception to what is going on under, quote, the rule of law, that now offices in all 50 states of the FBI have gone 
on protective alert because they are fearful of being assaulted. Mm -hmm. That's our Mm -hmm. culture. Yeah. And trickle that all the way down to pre-kindergartners who are doing active shooter drills. That too is our culture. Yeah. I was listening this morning to a kind of virtual welcome back to school for the parents for my kid two of my kids school this morning and he went on and on about how safety of the students is priority we want the students to feel emotionally safe we want to make sure that they have an adult on campus that they can come to we want to make sure that we know where they are at all times yada 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 oh and we're going to be doing active shooter drills you know so these And this is new for this school because I think that they have felt a little bit like, oh, no, we do things differently. That's not part of our school culture, but it's it's having to become part of ours. You know, I mean. (sighs) Do you know what an active shooter drill looks like? Only by my kids. Actually, yeah, I my my last couple of years of teaching in the classroom, we were having to do them. What are what, what are they like? So, and I think they've evolved since then, Um, but in my, and Josh has had to do them because he's still on campus as, as a, as an administrator. Um, But in, in my day, this was um, close the door, lock it, put a barricade in front of it, um, get students and yourself in one corner of the room that has the least accessibility and huddle. If you have tables, you get under the tables. Um, you could even turn tables on the side and and use them as a barrier. Um, that's it. And then you do that. And, and, and always in an active shooter drill, there are a few people asked to be the roamers. In other words, are all the classrooms secure? So they're the people that are, what do you say, the, the lamb going to slaughter in a way. If there really is an active shooter, those people are expected to play that role of going around and making sure all the classrooms are secure. Mm. They're scary. You know, when when I was young, we did tornado drills. And I think that was like a um, outcropping of the, uh, the Cold War drills, the kind of nuclear drills that you probably did as a child. We hit under um, the desk. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to protect us from an atomic bomb. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we drifted all over the map today. Shocker. (laughs) We never do that. (laughs) Um, What I'll do is put a link to, I'll put that poem in the, in the summary. And I'll also put a link to David Attenborough's documentary, The Green Planet. And uh, you could put a link to Jan Phillips' website. Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I hope people get and read her book, Still on Fire. It's so beautiful. It's just, it's such a wonderful story. And I like the way that she begins every chapter with, I'm telling you this story because. Yeah. Yeah. Took yeah. me a couple chapters to notice, oh, that's a theme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. like that it's like that Irish poem poet that you got me to read. Uh, yeah. 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 It's like his one of his books. Really good. In the shelter. Yeah, he, they're excellent. All right. All right. Love you. Day. This Thank is you. fun. See Hello. you.
Bye. Bye.